Welcome to That Stack of Books. Stuart Onan, City of Secrets. Stuart Onan is an award-winning fiction writer. His novels include Snow Angels, Prayer for the Dying, Last Night at the Lobster, and Emily Alone. City of Secrets. In post-World War II Jerusalem, a concentration camp survivor becomes involved in the underground resistance movement against the British. So that's the description on your website. Oh, that's good. That was my question. Do you like it? You like that? Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Anything you'd add to that? No. No, I think I think it stands there. And the the time period, I think, is I hope is enticing for readers. Uh, I think it's a time period that Americans don't know a whole lot about what's going on over there. Um, So there's a little bit of uh, a fish out of water there. The reader, Uh Uh, the reader has to find their way through the book the way that Bran has to find his way through Jerusalem find our way through the book because the story unfolds with much we don't know yeah yeah we don't know the full context of it I think over in Britain when it comes out there they'll be like oh yeah we we remember this very well but I think here there's a little bit of you know historical amnesia uh, (laughs) about that time period if we if we ever knew it well what uh, so here uh, Kirkus said uh, assumes the mantle of Conrad and Green in a probing, keening thriller. Nine, you know, reviews. God bless Kirkus. Right? You don't hear that too often. Okay, but what similarities are there, do you think, what similarities are there, do you think between your writing, Conrad, and Green? Or maybe the storytelling in Conrad, Green, and you? Well, I mean, first, first Conrad. I mean, uh, The Secret Agent is one of the very important books that this is, sort of takes off from. Um, Conrad in that book is looking at an anarchist bombing in London, uh, but he put it, sort of places the blame on a character who does not have full agency. Um, he's, he's of diminished capacity, which I think is sort of a, a cheat in a way, because the book is about moral agency. Um, and that, that'll bring in Graham Greene. I mean, all of his heroes, the, the best of his heroes, are usually men who are trying to still act as a moral agent in a world in which they've lost their faith and in a world that is an amoral world. Um, and I think Brand is trying to do that. He survives the camps, he's lost everything. He comes out a complete cipher, a free agent. I mean, he, the past is gone and he has to decide, who am I going to be? And he's drawn, I think, atavistically to Jerusalem, thinking that these are his people and this is where he needs to be. And where he wants to become this, this instead of this bystander who survived because he didn't act, a person who is going to act the question is, how do you act in a moral way in an amoral world? And Green is, is all about that. You know, um, I was reading about uh, some of the other work you did, and you, you, you helped compile, I guess you edited John Gardner's critiques. Gardner was dead, so you must have edited it posthumously, his, his writings on writers, on, on, writer, on writers and writing. But, but in there, there was a, a in the, what I was reading, there was this quote um, on moral fiction was Gardner's central thesis, that fiction should be moral. Gardner meant moral not in the sense of narrow religious or cultural morality, but rather that fiction should aspire to discover those human values that are universally sustaining. You sort of just laid that out with Brandt and this story, right? Undoubtedly, undoubtedly. And that idea of a fiction either being cautionary or exemplary. How do we live our lives and what are the consequences when we live our lives badly? Hmm. What drew you to this story, this era? Uh, always been fascinated by the time period. Um, growing up in the 60s, World War II and the repercussions, the consequences of World War II created the world that I grew up in. You know, 
the Cold War, the Eastern Europe, the Middle East, that all comes from the decisions that were made politically between 1945 and 1948. Um, so to go back and see somewhat before you know, the roots of them um, was, was really interesting to me. You were drawn to it because the before was uh, morally ambiguous, was it not? Well, it's, it's an unformed world, 45, 46. How is this world going to be? We don't know yet, especially in the case of Palestine, completely amorphous at that point. The British are there, uh, as, as they said, having this mandate, which means they were basically in the administrative government over Palestine from 1918 up until at least the present of the book. Later on, they sort of abandoned their post the way that the French and then the U.S. abandoned their post in Vietnam um, due to what happens there. Part of the attraction, of course, having grown up in 1960s and 1970s, is political violence revolution. How does a revolution happen? Um, is there such thing as a just revolution? Um, how do you take power and remain um, somehow good and moral? Um, do you answer that question? Yes or no? Do you answer it. that question? You frame the question. I mean, Chekhov says you ask the question. If you ask the question the right way, then the reader will be able to draw their conclusions. I tend not to judge my characters or their situations, and I just leave it to the reader. You know, the bombing of the, uh, the King David Hotel... Um, put a put a bad taste in in a lot of people's mouths who might have been Zionists. They put it, there was a lot of anger over what the Zionists did because of how many civilians were killed. Um, gave gave a lot of pause to that whole notion of of you know the the land taking over the land, but uh, it didn't stop it. Well, it was it was an, strangely enough it was an absolutely necessary step to you know, them. It, for, for the Irgun to, to convince the British that it just wasn't worth it. It was simply not worth it to stay here in Palestine anymore. It was one of the big blows. Um, to me, it seems a lot like the Tet Offensive in that when you look at it sort of militarily, it was kind of a fiasco. You know, it didn't work at all. But overall, tactically, in terms of a political move, it worked. For the Vietnamese. Worked for, for the, the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese. It worked for the Irgun. Yeah. Yeah, undoubtedly. And uh, how did it work for uh, for the uh, for the um, the Iraqis who were fighting the U.S. in Ramallah, for example? Well, yeah, yeah, great, great question. You know, or sort of the bombing of the barracks. You know, the the the, the U.S. barracks in, in Beirut. In Beirut. Yeah, all those things. I mean, how do you use political violence? When is it effective? Why is it effective? You know, and I, I think that's somewhat framed by the book. I, I don't. I don't. I don't do the full-blown context of it. Oh, it to, comes out to put you into the, the, yeah. the shoes of the character who has to make those choices and then live with them. Right. I was thinking about the young Somali men in Minnesota who are flying over uh, to fight in the various yeah. wars overseas. Yeah, exactly. But we judge them uh, very harshly in America, right? Very much so. Very much so. But in in every revolution, there are people that feel drawn to that revolution. Feel they need to to be part of it and, and to fight for what they feel is absolutely correct, absolutely right. Um, in Brand's case, he feels that these are his people. This is his fight now, um, and he's going to give himself to this. He doesn't know the whole context of what's happening there, which is part of the problem. He's a greenhorn. You know, like the American reader, he is a bit of a greenhorn, and he's got to learn, and he's going to learn the hard way. Yeah. 
When you join a terrorist organization, though, you at some point know you're going to be committing terrorist acts. Well, in this case, he joins the Haganah, which is not necessarily a terrorist organization. They said that they would, they would do defensive actions to protect the Jewish people within Palestine, and they were supported by the Jewish agency, which was seen as a very valid uh, political organization at the time. Um, and in fact, the organization that most people wanted to deal with there. But then at the end of the Second World War, um, the Haganah, the Irgun, and the Stern Gang all joined together into this united underground force against the British. And then, politically, you were in bed with people who were, like the Stern Gang, out-and-out terrorists. And when I was putting the book together and thinking about it, I thought of Michael Hare's description in Dispatches, his great Vietnam book. He says, you're responsible not simply for what you do, but for what you witness as well. And I started thinking about that, and that, I think, I hope, informs the character of Brand, because he has been a bystander and a witness during his time in the camps, the Russian camps and the Nazi camps. And he's decided, I'm not going to be this anymore. I'm going to be an active figure. But once you start to act, and then once you're in with all these other people, it's all on you. It's all on your shoulders. You have to be responsible for it and for the consequences of it. Did you travel to Israel or speak no. to any Israelis? No. I not noticed at all. that you wrote um, the larger conflict. Uh, it came from um, a report that came out, right? That they had put out in the white paper the of white 1939. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. When that came out in 39, the British limited the number of immigrants, uh, of Jewish immigrants who could come into Palestine at that time, because they had made promises to the Arabs that they would not let, you know, the Jews overrun the country there and take the country, because the, the Arabs, of course, were terrified that this would happen. Um, and they, they said, no, this is not going to happen, and they put it into a form, the white paper. Of course, that white paper then prevented Jews who were fleeing the Nazis from getting into Palestine. And the Americans weren't taking the Jews at that time, and a lot of other countries weren't taking them. So in, in some sense, it was a death sentence for a lot of people, and there was a lot of anger and a lot of hatred against the British, and I think that went into the struggle against them right there in Palestine. Why didn't you um, want to research it on the ground? It's gone. That, that time and place is totally gone. It's like the, the Hollywood of 1937 that I wrote about F. Scott Fitzgerald. Jerusalem has changed so, so much. In fact, at that time, Jerusalem was seen as a boring, dull little backwater town that no one wanted to go to. It's the middle of nowhere. There's nothing happening there. And so in reading a lot of contemporary accounts of people, they're like, oh, I don't want to go to Jerusalem. I you know, just don't want to be there. Um, and so I, I got to read a lot of memoirs uh, of people that were involved in the struggle at that time. And I learned a lot. Um, and, and, and like you were mentioning, the Somali men going over there, there were, you know, this one young Jewish woman from Brooklyn who decides, I need to be part of this struggle. And so she goes over there in 1947 and joins up. And she joins, of course, with the Haganah. And very quickly, she's in the Irgun. And very quickly, she's got weapons. And she's you know, in the middle of this thing. And for her, at 18, 19 years old, it's wildly romantic, crazily romantic. Here's the city that's kind of you know an open city. And there's spies everywhere. And there are young people everywhere. There's revolution in the air. There's jazz. There's music. There's this, you know, it, it's really, it, it's, it's a very... We think of Jerusalem as being the sort of the old city and ancient, but it was a very lively place at that time because of the revolution. 
this book reminded me a little bit of the new book that came out about the, the Lincoln Brigade, the history of, of the Americans yes. in the Lincoln Brigade. Yeah. And that book is about the toll it took on those people that went. Not a lot of them returned. No. And they were the same way. They were, uh, it was a romantic notion. And very idealistic. But, you know, they, they joined a losing side to begin with, right? That, that, was, that war, the Spanish Civil War, was over even really before it began. Um, they, there were very few um, successes. And yet they fought. I want to and say. Yet and, yet, and yet they fought and they died. Yes, yes. Well, of course, Orwell as well. There were Englishmen involved in that as well. Um, idealistic, socialist, you know, warriors. Um, yeah, but I think we know that history a little bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, because Hemingway brought us that history and made it part of our conversation. Whereas this history of the King David Hotel bombing and, and, and the, the struggle in 45, 46, we haven't seen a whole lot of it. We've seen later, we've seen the birth of Israel in terms of Exodus and something like that. But it's a, it's a very sort of cleaned up history uh, from, from what really happened there. And yeah. even, even Menachem Begin's memoir is, you know, every first person is an unreliable narrator, but some are more unreliable than others. Yeah, it's a very cleaned up history except for the people on the other side who also tell that same history and have an entirely different story we to tell, right? We haven't seen a whole lot of that history either. And in fact, when I was doing research for this book, there were not a whole lot of contemporary accounts that had in been, English that had been translated in English. There are very few of them that were contemporary at that time. In fact, most of the background material I had was simply um, Israeli. Um, there was a few things from, from British writers, but very, very few. And even some of the British writers, Arthur Kessler, of course, you know, wrote about it. Um, even they take the side of, of you know, the Zionist side. Um, there, there is one sort of regimental history of uh, the, the 6th Airborne, which was a Scottish brigade that was down there, that were basically the troops on the ground. And their view of it, of course, is wildly, wildly different. It is like, say, the L.A. cops' view of the 93 riots. It's, it's very, very... It's, totally separated. But for my purposes, I was interested in Brand, getting deep into Brand and, and getting that subjective view of him and getting intimate and getting very close and letting the reader into how it feels for him and letting him go through the sort of the maze of Jerusalem, the maze of the politics, so that we could feel it through him and feel it intensely. So in the end, how do you feel about Brand and how, what did he teach you? Uh, I, I, I think Brand, Brand, how oh, it's cheesy. It's so um, Brand, like, 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 yeah. It's hard to sort of you know nail down because yeah. you know, this this guy was living with him for like two years and trying to figure out what's going on with him. And, and Brand is, is torn between the past and, and the future, you know. And in the present, he's doing his very best, but he's in an impossible situation, you know. He doesn't know who to trust, and so he trusts the people closest to him, which proves to be a very dangerous move. Um, and yet he's, he's reawakening to the world. He's been, in a sense, dead and buried, you know, and he, suddenly he is alive again, and he, he comes back to the faith that is going to sustain him somehow, which he had lost completely, um, and he begins to love the world again. Um, secrets. City of Secrets is about secrets. Are secrets um, always a problem, or do secrets have some positive power for individuals? We need our secrets. We need to hold on to our secrets. You know, in, in AA, they, they always say you're only as sick as your secrets, but I think you're only as strong as your secrets, too. You know, the ones that you can carry with you. Because 
Brand's secrets include his past. It includes Katja. It includes his mother and his father and his, his sister Gigi. It includes the family home. It includes the Passover dinner that they had with their grandfather. All those are his. He can't share them with anybody. You know, they're his, and he, being the sole survivor of the family, he has to carry them. So secrets, memories, do these things save us or do they damn us? Right? Both, right? We're, we're, you know, these are the things that are indelible. They stay with us. They're always going to be with us. They're who we are. We can't give them away. We can't get rid of them. You know, so you have to sort of embrace them. And I think Brand learns to embrace them. Everyone's telling him, you know, you need to be the new Jew. You have to put away the past and be this victorious thing. And he's like, I'm still the guy that, you know, spent, you know, five, six years in the prison camps. I've seen people die. You know, I've helped not help people survive. You know, um, so he, he has all this guilt. He has all this fear. And that's part of him. He doesn't, don't give it away. Hang on to it. So maybe that's what Brand taught me there, you know. Hey, how did you come to writing? I was reading that, so you have a BS in aerospace engineering at Boston University in 83, and then you went to work for Grumman Aerospace Corporation, uh, test engineer, 84 to 88. You must have written a first novel in 87 that, I don't know if it got published then, or you just wrote it. Drawer, drawer novel. Drawer novel. Yeah. So um, how did you come to, to writing? Reading, reading. Saul Bellow says, a writer is just a reader moved to emulation. Absolutely true, because I've always been a big, big reader. I never really had plans to become a writer. Um, I was in my mid-20s. I was working at Grumman Aerospace. Didn't have any friends that were writers or, or even serious readers. But I don't know why, but you know, to emulate what I loved, I'd just come home and I'd write short stories in my basement. And I was trying to find out, you know, what is a short story? What does it do? How does it work? And so I'd go to the library and take out, you know, Best American Short Stories or the O. Henry Prizes from that year and see what is contemporary fiction doing? And I'd find readers that I loved and I'd search out their books and I began to sort of, you know, to learn. Um, and, and learn like an engineer, uh, little by little, piece by piece. Learn component. like an engineer. Learn like an engineer. I would write down words that people use that I would not necessarily use. So I'd look for tools, I'd look for components. If, if someone wrote a sentence that I naturally wouldn't hear right, I would write it down, I'd scan it, and say, how does that sentence work? Where are the pauses? Where are the breaths? How does it move? Um, and I would just take things apart. How do they work? I would look at every short story in the best American short stories, and I'd break it down and see how is this plotted? Is it not plotted? What does it move? What's the emotional movement? How do they do it? And where'd you get the tools to do something like that? Was that intuitive for, I, as an I, engineer? I think that's just the engineer thing. When you're looking at all the components and sort of just you know how do they fit together, break them apart, then put them back together, break them apart again, and put them back together in a different way. Did did the MFA? What did the MFA do for you as a writer and an engineer? really accelerated the process um, in terms of my reading. Uh, before I went to Cornell for my MFA, I had never read Margaret Atwood. I'd never read uh, Dennis Johnson. I'd never read William Maxwell. I'd never read Alice Munro. Uh, never read Marilyn Robbins. I mean, all the writers who were the writers that most other writers admired, I had no idea who they were, none whatsoever. I mean, I, I'd read my Joyce. I'd read some Virginia Woolf, but I was reading a lot of the people that I love to read, Ray Bradbury, Richard Matheson, Stephen King, Shirley Jackson, Flannery O'Connor. But the MFA program showed me what was somewhat current and what was sort of overlooked classic. 
Uh, Richard Yates, I'd never read him before. I'd never read Joyce Carol Oates before. Um, I never really read John Updike before. I took a class with Laurie Moore there, and she gave us all these very, what we thought were very mainstream writers, and we're like, oh, this is so boring. These, oh, John Updike, he's so boring. Joyce Carol Oates is so boring. You know, and she came into class, she said, there's a reason why these people are seen as great writers. They do things better than any other writers can do. They do certain things. Learn those things. You don't have to like it, right? You just have to learn from it. So again, it was the tools? The tools. And getting these tools and putting them in that toolbox so that maybe down the road when you needed this, like, the way that Updike's eye covets the physical world. When you need that, now you have it. So when I was writing Last Night the Lobster, immediately I'm going back to Rabbit is Rich, right? Where Updike's eye just grabs all this stuff and, and attaches it to Rabbit there. And I can use that, I can s like slide it over and run a twist on it with my guy that Updike would completely you know, overlook. You know? But just move it over and use that same tool. Hmm. When you, um, so you get uh, in the Walled City, 1993 Drew Hines Literature Prize. So your wife has encouraged you to write, and mm -hmm. like, what is that, like a year later or two years later, you get this prize. And, and, uh, and then you also got a publisher for Snow Angels, your, your second novel. Yeah. What were editors? Well, fourth. Oh, it was your fourth novel. That was by the, so by had, that time, it was a fourth novel. So you had three in the yeah, drawer. Yeah, three in the drawer. So is it good yeah. to have three yeah. in the drawer? Teaches you to sit there, teaches you to have faith, teaches you that, that you know, eventually this will turn into something, even if it just turns into the novel in the drawer. Uh, to finish. Hmm. Got to finish. You can't quit. That's what, uh, that's what uh, Ann Patchett told me when I told her I was quitting. And then I came back and, and, uh, and she said, I told her why. And she said, well, you know, uh, because I have these unfinished things in my drawers shouting at me. And she said, you have a contract with yourself. And the contract says you have to finish it. What happens after that doesn't really matter as much, but you have yeah. to finish. Yeah, well, I had a friend who was a, a visual artist, and he said, every time I throw a piece away, I'm losing money on materials. But even more than that, what's the most valuable thing you have? It's the very most valuable thing you have in your life. Time. You know, you spend all this time on it, and then you're just going to flush it down the drain? No. Finish it, make it as good as it can possibly be, and then move on. Abandon it, as Conrad says. Abandon it. Yeah. He says, nothing's ever finished, only abandoned. And that's true. You run out of patience at a certain point. Nothing's ever finished, only abandoned. Only abandoned. That's, that's Conrad. But, it, I mean, at some point you run out of the patience to make the book better. And, yes, you could put it on the shelf for another three months, come back to it fresh, and make it maybe a little bit better. But at that point, it's just these marks on the page. You're not getting any emotion back from it. All your discovery is done. You've done the best you possibly can, and you send it out into the world. And that's when, when it comes back published, and you look at it, and you're like, oh, fuck. I left that line in there. Oh, dumb, dumb. You know, you never get it quite right. You never get it. You're never going to get it perfect. It's not supposed to be perfect. So, you know? so what did the editors tell you? These, this first time you get published, what were the editors telling you about your work that 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 was another tool for you to use as you went forward? Seeing opportunities or seeing places where you sort of you know you took a wrong step. Um, in in Snow Angels, my first published novel, uh, in the last chapter, it's 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 a nested. It's a nested story. That is, we start in the present, and we go back into the past, and say, I'm going to tell you the story about the past and why it means so much to me. In the original version, it comes back up. That there's a, a frame, and, and the end frame is we're back in the present, and here we are, you know, and here's how things have turned out, right. and now I have learned kind of thing. And my agent at the time said, you know, keep, keep the pressure on. Keep the pressure on those characters. Stay in the past. Take it all the way to the end. And, and they, they were absolutely right. I was like, oh, that's crazy. I'd finished the book like nine months before. I was like, how do I go back, regather those feelings and all that? 
but I was able to do it. And I wrote a new last chapter and it ends the way that the book I think was supposed to end. And, it, and when I wrote it, when I finished it again, that last time I was like, wow. yes, that's yeah. absolutely right. Nailed it. You have a bunch of readers. Uh, writers that whose names we know, and I guess friends as well, and folks. Oh yeah. Uh, what when are they reading it, and what are they doing for you? They're reading it when I've taken the draft process as far as I can by myself. You know, I, I've I've gone through everything. I say, okay, I got nothing left, and I want to know what I got, right? Because usually I'm very close to a character, and so it's hard to tell how that character is coming off, because uh, I'm so invested in the character emotionally. So I'll give them to this first wave of readers and they will come back and they'll tell me things like you know these are your two main characters and they don't have enough scenes together right I'm missing these scenes am I missing scenes you know I don't want to miss scenes I don't want my character to be misunderstood right um, and they'll come back and they'll tell me things that I just couldldn't see myself and then I'll look for consensus and I'll look for things that I kind of suspected you know were a problem and then I'll go back in and I'll work with them and I'll fix them and so before I send it off to New York to my agent I kind of know what I've already got but then my agent used to be the, the head editor at Doubleday David Gurner so when he reads it he's got an editor's eye on it as well and he has his two cents to say um, and I'll listen to him because he's a great editor um, and then it'll go to Paul Slovak uh, over at Viking, another great, great editor, and I'll listen to what he has to say. Will I make every change? No, of course not. Um, but I'll certainly listen to them and understand that I think every generous and invested reader is going to make the book better. Hmm. So by the end of it, the people that I trust have gone through it. They've looked at every little thing. The copy editor comes in and tries to help me from making a fool of myself, you know, and, and, and tweaks and tweaks and tweaks things. So by the end, you hope that you've justified every single mark on the page. You have considered every single thing on the page. It may have come from this sort of very uh, amorphous, associative process that you're kind of dreaming your way through. But in the end, you have to think about how does it all work together? And does it, as Poe says, does it have the total effect? When you finish the book, do you really have something that is going to move or astonish or amaze or incite the reader? That's the hope. Yeah, yeah. Um, it reminds me a little bit of, of uh, well, never mind. Uh, oh, well, I interviewed Ivan Doig one time just before he died. And... I'm just telling you. So again, I was getting ready to quit. I had I decided oh, I'm going to do a master's class, and so the last year I just interviewed as many great novelists as I could, um, and talked about their work. And Doig and Doig sat me down. And he said, "This is what I do in the green room." He said, "This is what I do." I said, "I get." And his wife was there because she she was laughing. I get like four colored pencils, pens, and and I go through and I underline verbs, whole sentences, paragraphs. So you do the same thing. You have, you pull out that those four color pen. The four-color pen. The big four-color pen. It's the best thing for a writer. And do you do the similar thing? Like, oh, what are the verbs that I'm using right now? Where am I repeating? But also, where am I not being specific? Strong? Usually, you, usually I'm so concrete I don't have to worry about that. I'm so, I'm so compulsive that, no, it's not a problem. What do you use your four-color pen for? Uh, just for hacking. Just to hacking at it. You know, many, many different iterations, many different drafts. And there's, they make another one, too, that has a, a purple, pink, lime green, and sky blue one, too. So you can, <laughs> you can get eight revisions done in different colors. Now, and then 
when you're sort of inputting them back into the computer, you change those again, and you print it out, and you do it all over again, and you just keep keep beating on it, keep beating on it, make it better and better. Because most writers, and this, I guess this is the secret of most writers, is we're terrible writers. We're terrible writers. Our first drafts are just god awful. They're horrible. You know, they're they're ugly. They're nasty. Um, you know, full of repetitions, full of you know unintentional rhyme. They're just bad. Um, but you can make them better, little by little. And every day you make it a little better, a little better, a little better, a little. And that's what the whole process is. So at the end of you know 735 days, you've had 734 to make that first sentence a little bit better. Yeah. 735 days. Yeah. Uh, you are, have been putting out about a novel every year, a novel every two years? No, maybe, maybe every two years, but I don't have another job. This no, is your job. I, this, I don't have health insurance. I, you know, <laughs> I, I got I to gotta produce if I'm going to live, if I'm going to eat. Um, and I do, that was the flip side of your wife encouraging you to be a writer. <laughs> right, exactly. I, I do a page a day. I try to do one double space page a day, which is 300 words, which, as you know, is not a lot. It's really not a lot. And the, the important thing is, it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be wonderful. It can be absolute crap. In fact, you probably want it to be absolute crap because you're going to make it better. You're going to learn from the draft is just a sort of a, it's a pointer that says this is kind of the direction you're going, kind of. You know, some of the discovery is there, but there's so much more discovery in going over it and fixing it and changing it and, because it's, it's always changing. Nothing is set. What do you want it to be, though? Do you want it to be that pointer, that the first draft? You, you I want, want to just it keep going forward. Move me further into the story. Take me further into the story. Don't get ahead of me. You know, don't divulge a scene that really needs to be on page 155 when you're only on page 70. You know, but take me further into the story. You know, Are you, go by the same, go by this sort of same pacing, and let's go further. What happens next? What happens next? What happens next? Very basic stuff. Do you uh, keep it up here? Or do you have it all written? Out? Do you do you? Are you one of the writers that puts the whole plot down on uh, index cards and puts it up on the wall somewhere? It depends on what kind of book I'm writing. If I'm writing a book like uh, City of Secrets, is plotted from obviously plotted from the end backwards. You know, how do we get to this point? You know, we know this point is here. We know it's a huge climax, so we know we're going somewhere. But you have to think backwards. Who is this person? Why is he doing this? You know, and, 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 and everything that he goes through to get there, complication, development, you know, the, the minor climaxes within there. So that's one way of doing it. I think it's, it's, it's a little more, you always have a little more sense of where you're going because you know kind of where you're going to end up. But the flip side of that is going from an initial upset, say, uh, the good wife. Uh, her husband is busted on a murder charge and is convicted. First chapter. What happens after that? Well, I have no idea. I don't know what happens. But I'll talk to people that are in that situation, and they will tell me what happens. What is writing to you now? Well, I mean, I've, I've, been, I've been writing now, I, I think, steadily for about 30 years. Um, so it's a habit. Um, it's an ingrained habit the way that reading is. And, and of course, they feed each other. Uh, when, it, when it's going well, it, it's sheer pleasure. And it's discovery, and it's surprise, and it's, it's, it's a way of living in two worlds at once, which is kind of what we love to do when we're readers, right? And when you're reading a book that you really love, you don't want to be, you know, doing a regular everyday thing. You just want to read that book. And when you're writing a book, it's that way. You know, you go there every morning, and it sort of opens to you, and you sort of go into that world, and you're in this other world, and it's great. And you know the people there, and it's very warm and intimate. And um, when writing is going badly, it's, it's, it's self-loathing. It's, it's self-hatred. It's like, it's the worst. It's what do the you worst. do? And, uh, just write more. Keep going. Write more. Write more and, and, and fix it. Fix it. Fix it. You know, and, and again, have that faith that eventually in the end you will have something. And that's, it, that faith is not always rewarded. You can work and work on a book and finish a book and it can still be terrible. You can put everything you have into a book and it's still not going to be a good book. It's not supposed to be easy, right? It's right. art. 
but the faith yeah. is the faith contingent. Now you're going to say no. Is the faith contingent on having some uh, talent or skill? No, it's contingent no, on I knowing mean, look, to look be. Look at me. I, mean, I, I got no skill, no skill. I mean, zero, nothing, nothing whatsoever. You know, I started from absolute scratch. But you have it's it's the will, right? It's the will to want to do it and to sit your ass down and do it. Joseph Conrad again. He said, "There's two things that are hard about writing. One is starting. The other is not stopping. Because hmm. you always want to stop. You always say, I got nothing. You know, when I started writing." Um, it was, you know, the early word processors, and there was a little cursor, a little rectangular cursor would blink at you, you know, and I hated seeing that thing blink at me because I couldn't feed it. I had nothing to give to it. And so I would get up out of my chair, and I'd walk around my office, and I'd pick books off the shelves, books that I loved, and I'd start reading them, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes later, you know, that time had just vanished on me. And so eventually I tied myself to the chair. Literally? I took, literally. I took a piece of yarn, I wrapped it around a thigh, and I, I tied it to the arm of the chair so that when I wanted to get up and get away from that cursor, the chair would then hit me in the legs and remind me, I need to sit there. Sit at your machine, Flannery O'Connor said. Absolutely true. Don't waste your writing time by reading. You know, your writing time is your writing time. You can use the rest of your life to read as much as you want, but your writing time, you got to sit there. It's like NASCAR, seat time. If you don't get your seat time in, what kind of driver are you going to be? How much is, what's your seat time for writing 300 words in a day? Uh, nine hours. Well, a half hour off for lunch. All right, so you're working. You're crafting that. 300 words. I'm sitting there staring out the window open mouth. You know, I'm catching flies. Um, yeah, I'm just sitting there and, and hoping, hoping it comes. And, and my, my desk is totally welcoming place. I love being there. You know, I've, you know, I got my chair. In, in the cold months, I got my blanket. There's no heat in my attic. You know, I can look out the window and watch the squirrels running across the telephone wires. Um, I'm not interrupted. I don't got a cell phone. I'm not on the internet. I just have this, you know, little word processor, me, my notes, my journal, you know, pictures, maps, all the stuff that I need for the book. And I'll sit there and, and hope something comes. And usually it does. And but but clearly you're pulling from that toolbox of all the things you've learned to tweak and manipulate and tighten and loosen. Well, by now it's become second nature. You know, you recognize opportunities. You say, oh, this is what needs to happen here. You say, how big does this scene need to be? Is this a full scene? Is it a half scene? Is it like a summary? You know, how, how big do I got to go? Okay, I'm inspired. I guess that's why that's why you're still a teacher and still help people well, be, you te my, be my, teachers. My, my superpower is sitting on my butt. That's you know? a good superpower. Yeah. All right, one last question. Faithful to diehard Boston Red Sox fans chronicle the historic the 2004 longest, season. You, longest subtitle in the history of the world. You co-wrote it with Stephen King. This is my only question to you. You're from Pittsburgh. Why are you? Why are you a Boston Red Sox fan still? Because we are family. Uh, I moved to Boston in the fall of 1979, which is, as you'll remember, the last time the Pirates won the World Series. So my first, basically my first season away from home, you know, the Pirates won it all, and I was watching it with my friends up in Boston, and I lived two blocks from Fenway Park. So it seemed natural that when spring rolled around, I was still excited about baseball, and just went there, it was $2 to get in the park, hung around with people, we smoked in the stands, you know, you know, uh, every every June 16th it was Bloomsday, so you read Ulysses in the stands. You know, it was it was a great place. It was just a place to hang around and and, and mess around, and you know, just kind of fell in love with the team because at that time they were very much like the Pirates. They could hit the crap out of the ball, but they couldn't pitch at all. So they're fun to watch. They were very much at that time a National League kind of team, and so I really liked it. I liked the place. I liked the 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 
players, and it just kind of stuck with it. And um, still, you know, Sox and the Pirates, love them both. Yeah, I was I was just curious if the Pirates also still rank for you. Oh yeah, always, always. No, I, my grandmother was a huge, huge fan. She listened on her transistor radio, and she she turned us on. She took us to Forbes Field. She took us to the very first game at Three River Stadium. She made sure we were there. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's very very deep. I've been to Pittsburgh. I've never been to Philadelphia, but I hear Philadelphia fans are horrible. Uh, are they? And why do they have that reputation? And, is, <laughs> and does Pittsburgh have that same reputation? No, actually, Pittsburgh has a reputation for just being nice, except if you're from Cleveland. Um, but, um, you know, Philadelphia fans, obviously, there's some historical accuracy to They're the people that threw snowballs at Santa Claus. You know, they tend to love their teams when they're winning, but when they start to lose, they're really tough on them. They run them out of town on a rail. I see. Um, so, they're, I mean, they're, they're kind of, what's the word, fair-weather fans in a way, but they're not really. I mean, there are some super, super diehard Eagles fans out there. Yeah. I mean, really diehard Eagles fans. Um, so, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't think they're worse than, than any other fans, really. I mean, they care. They care about the team. What, what more could you ask for? I mean, obviously, just I was just in L.A. the other day, and they could care less. They don't. They don't care. You know, New York, not really a sports town. They're not living and dying with a 500 team. If the team's 500, no one shows up. No one shows up for the Mets anyway, right? That's one of the World Series last year. They probably averaged what 13,000 people in a brand new stadium. So. There are some cities that are serious, hardcore sports cities, sometimes because that's the only thing they got going on. You know, and that was, that was the way it was for Pittsburgh in the 70s. You know, there wasn't a whole lot going on in town, so we kind of just grabbed onto the Steelers and, you know, hung out of their coattails. Um, Mariners going all the way this year, by the way. You know. And the Cubs. <laughs> yeah. So, Come on, the Cubs are yeah, going to do it. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, there, there's no expectations for the Mariners this year. Two years ago, there were high expectations. They did nothing, so everyone kind of just checked out on them. And today, the Mariners are playing at 7 o'clock. Sadly, I have to do a reading. Um, but if I weren't, I would go over and you know, check out Safeco because I've never been. Um, I know King Felix is not throwing tonight, so it's an easy ticket. It's yeah. a real easy. I could walk up and probably sit in field box. Um, at Fenway, I would have to kill someone's old relative and inherit a ticket. Um, and and uh, in Pittsburgh now, we've been to the playoffs three years in a row, and the place is packed. It's rocking. You know, Andrew McCutcheon owns the town. You know, it is a baseball town. People forget that. Um, it, it, you know, back in the day of Stargell, Clemente, Dave Parker, it is a baseball town. Football was kind of a Johnny-come-lately there. Um, and for a while, the Penguins of all teams, uh, it was a hockey town. But deep in its heart, it's a baseball town. You know, Honest Wagner, Pie Trainer, Wayner Brothers, Ralph Kiner. No. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, all right, Stuart Onan's City of Secrets is his latest novel. I will tie myself to my chair and get my butt to work. Uh, find us at That Stack on Twitter, That Stack of Books with Nancy Pearl and Steve Share on Facebook and at thatstackofbooks.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you're listening through some other means. And please support your public library. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Steve.